0: So I'm here with Mark, Alma, Ashward. We're just having a nice little fireside chat. Thought I would do just a little grab-back Q&A. So one question I have for um, whoever wants to answer it. What do you recommend to people who have challenges uh, with emotion, specifically not knowing what they're even feeling, feeling blocked, stuck, Uh, or, Or there's just emotional overload and they really don't know how to navigate that. What kind of advice do you have? Or what has worked for you in the past?
1: Emotions are awesome. They're, they're key to getting deep, 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 deep inside. Um, what I found worked well when sitting with people is to, to just hold an open space with them and kind of let them know it's safe. It's safe to, to be here. Let them be open and invite their emotion, in a like a compassionate way. I always say. Imagine yourself as a child and that child is with you right now, hold its hand and ask it to show you exactly what it is. It wants to show you whatever comes up, you're okay. And you're safe and just see what happens. You're not trying to control anything. Just allow them to come out. Be like a, be like an open door. Let them come, say what they say and let them go.
2: Um, well, the two examples he gave are very different to me in terms of someone who maybe has trouble finding an emo- with what seems like an emotion, so there might be like a sense of numbness or just not much going on um and there's nothing necessarily bad about that, but if there is an interest in finding something and going deeper, if there's a a knowing that there's something on the other side of the numbness. Um, I just really just aim for something practical. Like, um, typically most people have something that they're interested in, something that they care about. So it could be your work or it could be a hobby, or it can be a person where there's some, something happening there and it might not even feel like an emotion, but typically, if something is has your attention or if it's important to you, then there's an emotion in there somewhere. Um, I don't really think that we can mentally or logically choose those kinds of things. There's an emotional driver, but it just might not be, you might not be directly in touch with it. And so just by talking about that and just exploring what it is, you can kind of head towards the emotion in a kind of mental way. Um, Alternatively, you could approach it from a physical way. So start with like a sensation you can feel in your body and kind of bring more and more attention to that. Um, And like you were saying, Ishwar, if you'd find like safety and relaxation, that will aid in the effort, I think. Um, For people that have, in a sense, the opposite problem or the other end of the spectrum, um, my recommendation is kind of the opposite have space, take a break. Um, there's no obligation to constantly be working on an emotion, even if it's true that there's something there to work with. So, um, taking a break and then also finding resources. So you can think of it as like two separate projects serving the same goal. So the one project is exploring the emotions and the other project is learning how to resource yourself so that you can explore emotions
3: so i would say for me something that has shifted over time and and that i've learned to appreciate is taking the time and the space to actually honor an emotion and work with it because It can be kind of difficult to even conceive of that as something worth doing. I think for me, that was not um, in my value system. Um, And most of my energy was going towards behaviors, like acting on emotions instead of just feeling them. So to be able to start at maybe what am I doing right now that is a substitute for feeling because it's sort of like channeling the emotion, but it's not really putting me in direct contact with it. So to to break that link um, and then realize that I can just be with the emotion. Um, as a physical experience. Um, in be- in the process of doing that, of unlinking the behavior from the feeling, I encountered a lot of beliefs, um, such as, this is not okay. Or if you approach this Something terrible's gonna happen. Beliefs that weren't very conscious or like explicit. Um so finding those and just being able to to state them could be very helpful as far as breaking the resistance patterns. Um, And then something that Eshwar said about treating treating the emotions like you were a child. I think that that has been so helpful for me with fear because the emotion of fear tends to always encompass other emotional experiences. And so being able to come into contact with fear specifically, um, kind of like the key that, that unlocks all of the other emotional experiences. And it's probably the, the hardest part, the most challenging part to, to really come into contact with, with fear, because it leads you to the unknown. Um, so yeah, I expect fear to arise. One working with emotions universally I think that I've found that to be generally true. And then what's on the other side is always surprising because it's a mystery. It's not a defined destination. And then the and then working with emotions becomes a, a spontaneous process where it doesn't have to be treated as a distinct activity or focus. Um because the fear barriers start to drop away. So it's it's pretty natural to feel um, without inhibitions.
0: Awesome. So segueing from the description of entering the unknown through fear or beyond fear, can you talk about in any way that feels relevant um, in encountering the unknown in the awakening process? Or encountering the mysterious in the awakening process. How does that manifest? Or in what ways? And what are its implications?
3: It's not something you can imagine. I think the first step is to discard that word. Because when I when I conjure that... Word, there's an image that accompanies it. It's different every time, but it's so beyond that that it's not even worth trying to imagine. And yet it's definitely accessible, and there's a value to having a word for it. It's too close. It's too accessible. That's why it can't be known.
2: Mark, um, I think in a way the unknown is, is the awakening process. It's, and so a lot of times, um, I think as human beings, we are literally evolved to fear the unknown. And, um, so before there's been a shift, I think there is this sense that, um, a sense of a willingness to step into something that you really don't know what it is or what it's going to be or how it's going to be. Um, and like, for me, I think, I think I was intellectually convinced of, of the, the truth of emptiness or awakening, um, but there was a certain kind of courage or willingness to look at everything and allow everything to be broken down, whether it's me or even like awareness itself, just being willing to to risk, take the, the leap into breaking everything down, deconstructing everything. Um, and then once that happens, there can be a shift where you realize that in some way you are kind of the unknown, um, but for a while it still feels like becoming more and more familiar with, more and more willing to um, explore the unknown, to um, allow the unknown to unfold. And then I think over time, the way I see it is becoming more and more clear that you you are the unknown and it's just the unknown is what what is what is is the unknown
0: i think Bodhi uh, bodhidharma back there would agree with you
1: the door is fear. The prices are surrender. um, the fear generally comes because comfort lies in knowledge and known and everything up to that point was very comfortable. The, when you're approaching the unknown, the first door that gets slammed shut is fear generally coupled by a story about what's behind that door without going and looking. The recognition is to see that process happening within yourself, that you're believing a story about something that you don't know. And that's what's closing the door. But the fear is inviting you to come and look, but it's not to fight against the fear. If you get afraid, you accept that. Hey, I'm afraid. You got me. Close the door. Let's go. Let's go at this again. Let's see what's up. Same thing like that child, you take that child there, imagine a child going into the unknown, knowing nothing, completely shook and scared. That's what you are, but the discovery is made by not accepting the belief and going and seeing what's there. And that's, that's all that can be said because at the, this threshold is the moment that kind of puts you on spot of what surrender is going to look like for you. Nobody's going to teach you that. That's something that's, it's either you do or you turn around and you run. Those are your options. But I encourage you to go and look, cause that's the only way you're going to know. And if you're going to run, that's all you're going to be doing for the rest, the rest of the journey, where you're running back to the known, everything you already know. So there's nothing new. there's no discovery. so give it a shot. go and see what's up <laughs> uh,
0: so um maybe someone else can address there or unpack this this business of not recognizing that even though some aspects of your uh, comfort zone uh, are uncomfortable or painful and dysphoric and the story you tell yourself is how bad that is that's actually you're, you're using that to stabilize yourself often you you can use the uncomfortable but known, the uncomfortable, but predictable to stabilize yourself. And and you can fool yourself in a sense because you're believing the story that I'm trying so hard, I'm trying to let go, I'm trying to surrender. But the the, the the actual feeling tone of being the one that's trying for so long and failing, it's uncomfortable, it doesn't feel good in a lot of ways, but it's it's known. It's stable. It's predictable. That, that can be a tricky place for some people to get stuck, I think. Um, not. Rec- it's almost like overlooking the unknown. Conveniently, again and again, overlooking just because, and for no other reason than it is unknown. Uh, I don't know if anyone has a different way of addressing that, but I do find that that being a fixation point for a lot of people.
1: A job you learned it already, so it's up to you guys. Um, yeah,
2: what, what I'm hearing you say is that there's a, a comfort in suffering and even a safety in suffering sometimes. And I suppose it's possible that it could be a strongly like mental thing that's going on there. There's a lot of ideas about the unknown and a really strong sort of commitment to believing the story in your mind. Um, and I can imagine that in a way, the more sort of successful you are in using your mind to navigate the world, the more powerful the pull would be to stick with and trust your own experience there. Um, so, you know, honestly that I think what I've seen, and I'm sure there's other things to see, but what I've seen is that it often takes something significant to break through that. Like some some painful event or some crisis to kind of break through because why not, why else would you break through that? I mean, it's working even if it comes, it comes with a certain degree of suffering that you might not even see as suffering. Um, another angle on it, I think is that some people have a great deal of trauma that they haven't been able to touch directly. And so they make the bargain of sort of an unpleasant, not actually comfortable experience, but it's a heck of a lot safer than what it seems like touching that trauma would be. And kind of pointing back to, to what I was saying earlier about resourcing, like if you don't have some kind of resource, then you might kind of be right actually. Um, and that people, um, can wake up into extreme pain and suffer. And in a way like it's not actually worse, but it's seemingly worse suffering, more intense suffering. And so um, I respect that barrier a lot. And I think some people have success pushing past it. Um, I don't know how to do that in a way that we're, that I feel comfortable with. Um, and so instead, what I would do is to, um, build that resource, which can be something that's very just internal, but it can also be through relationship and through improving, um, one's life one the, the stability and structure of your life so that you can then, um, take that risk and step into the, the wild unknown, um, you know, and, and as I say that I can see how it might be heard is like no you can't actually have it both ways like it, if you really want to step through you're going to have to let go of all of that and i would agree but i think that um there is something to be said for building the resource to at least being able to to face that reality and make a conscious decision to jump into that place where you won't well there is no comfort and there is no safety
0: well said I just wanted to add up just briefly to the... the I agree with both points, totally. Um, to the first point you made, you know, this intellect is so highly valued in, in our society and in, in humanity, but it, certainly in Western culture and so forth and being driven and being goal-oriented and accomplishing things and being smart and being clever. There's, it's just rewarded in so many ways. Um, and that's fine. Uh, the I just always like to point out that when we're talking about what we're talking about when we're talking about touching into your true nature or, uh, traversing this inward path, however you want to say that it's just not that kind of thing. The intellect just, just fails, you know, and that's, this is where things like Zen, you know, using a Koan, Mu, it is just so potent because it just gives the mind nothing. And it's, 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 um, that can be very difficult for some people to let go of people who are very intellectual, very smart. Clever. Uh, they can even learn all of the terminology and the doctrine and the suttas and not realize they're using all of that actually to sort of again stabilize themselves. So, um, yeah. So, your I think your point is very well made. We got a we got a ghost speaker back here.
4: <laughs> um, the mind is excellent at confirming what is already a bias. And so if you have a bias around your suffering, then you know the story quite well. Pay attention to that. It's a very strong primary indicator of where to look deeper. So I have a question following to follow that up. So you,
0: have, you come from a performance acting background, investigating identity from that place, from the place of performance, from the place of um, directly investigating the psyche and the personality can you give some tips on what you do when you've discovered what you just said Uh, how how can you start to look into that
4: um really it's just a matter of uh, seeing if you can recognize a pattern a pattern of your bias a pattern of thought a pattern of behavior and then it's likely to be pointing toward something that's sensational um Some people really revel in their pain, but only because it's confirming the story. They actually don't want to experience those sensations. So the sensations are revealing something or pointing somewhere, and the deeper you can allow yourself to go, outside of interpretation, outside of confirming the story, you may begin to find that it's really not as bad as the mind is telling you. Um, in terms of performing and things along those lines, um always a great recommendation is to move outside of what is the usual. So if you are kind of a layperson and you have an opportunity to take some improvisation classes, it will definitely begin to reveal some limitations. And identity and personality by nature is limited. So anytime you can find that barrier that feels like discomfort, um, that's new, live there as long as you can. Thanks.
3: I have a response. This came to me, um, maybe a little bit of a different angle. Um, I think it's kind of a perverse thing to say, but I found in my own, path and exploration that one of the anchors or one of the draws to staying within the familiar aspects of suffering um where i think what you asked originally was when we identify with something that is known um but it's painful but we we choose that over the unknown and i think that I've, I've found that sometimes that emotional tone or emotional realm, um, there's investment there because it keeps me connected to others. So there's something about emotional connection and attachment in, in really close um, relationships that is just rooted in suffering. Um, it's, it's rooted in separation, and yet there's something about that experience that feels very comforting and nurturing, and we don't see how it actually perpetuates suffering, because it feels like like warmth at times, it feels um, reassuring, it feels like I exist. And there, there's someone else out there that because of my relationship with that person, I'm reminded that I exist um, and that I'm safe to some degree. Um, But I found that a lot of times it just ends up being like indulgence in suffering to keep that sense of connection alive. And then unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, like take that far enough. You just realize like you're going to have to let go of everything and everyone and you're fundamentally alone and that that's part of the realization and that's when the suffering that aspect of suffering can be let go of um, the the pain in emotional attachment that feels so familiar and uh, draws draws us in at times uh, and keeps dynamics in place of like dynamics that are like push and pull uh, with others but yeah, I think it's, it's kind of heartbreaking to realize that you are alone on this path. All all forms of connection ultimately like disappear and um, that that it was always artificial. And you have to be kind of like a like a, an iconoclast, I guess or a, a rebel to some degree to be willing to test that out for yourself because everything in society, society like discourages that like walking alone that's so perhaps
4: i think that's a good point and um just to kind of piggyback off of that a tad um what is known is the death of curiosity it, it has a finite value to it the unknown that's a hell of a lot of freedom and i don't know and so continue to play with, I don't know, because I think you'll find nobody knows. Nobody knows.
0: Yeah, and I agree with Alma in the sense that at some point along this this inward journey for everyone, they will come into contact with, there's different ways to say it. One is the way you said it, that ultimately you're utterly alone. So this is, what is it's definitely the... I guess the subjective experience of it, if there's any subjectivity left at that point. But I might say it in just a different way, and that is you cannot put one iota of responsibility for this realization on anyone or anything else at all. It's impossible. It just, and and so much of trouble in spirituality, in spiritual circles that can become um, less than supportive or even toxic or even, you know, cult-like situations, I think they actually come from not really understanding this, not understanding that you can't put it on an enlightened teacher to wake to wake you up. You can't put it on the Sangha. All those things can be helpful if they are authentic resources, and there are authentic resources out there, uh, but they can never really cross you over. It's, it's really a solitary, inward journey and a very, very deep letting go. Um, and... I think what Alma said is right on the money, that at some point, when you really get down to that sort of deep shadow, you get into the really um, granular roots of identity, you see that so much of this comes from very early developmental, you know, bonding, relational types of energies that become internalized. And, And you see the world, you see your partner, you see your parents, you see your... Your emotions, your 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 thoughts—all you see, all of that—through this veil that was created at a very young age. And this based on an illusion, and to see that all you've ever been engaging is an illusion, is is an act of radical, um, in a sense, aloneness. aloneness. Um, and it's not even to say we're alone in the conventional sense. It's not like that. It's it's to see that all of what we externalize as. Our partners, our, the world, people, all even externalizing our own image of ourself. All of that really is an illusion. It's just not there at all. Um, and it leaves you absolutely and completely empty-handed. <laughs> then the, the, the question is, are you okay empty-handed? Absolutely empty-handed. Are you okay with no orientation? Can you actually abide in not abiding? Can you literally be the mystery or die? let the mystery completely eradicate you? And I can't answer that for you and I can't tell you how to do it but I know it's possible
4: good signpost a good signpost along the way is um, whatever seems to feel like shame that sense of being alone and whatever that shame seems to be for you will be a strong indicator of how that's projecting outward so a really good inquiry sometimes is where am where do I want to protect or project my shame or Where do I habitually project my shame in these, um, situations of conformity, which is really interesting because it does seem to have that aspect of mm, a lack of self-worth or I'm not good enough. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. I'm too dangerous for the world. One of these statements seems to be at the core of all of that. And, um, of course it's not an in place. These are all still just clues yet. Pay attention to where that seems to arise.
0: anyone else have anything to say about shame? All I can say is shame is a very good place to investigate, however that feels for you or however it appears for you. There's something about shame that has a sort of protective layer that just says, don't look here. Like, don't look here. This is the part of yourself you don't want to see. This is the part of yourself you don't want anyone else to see. It's so bad in here that you're just going to be devastated, destroyed if you go in here. And in a sense, you you might be devastated and destroyed when you go in there, but not in the emotional way you're you might be perceiving it. Uh, All I can say is if you breach the barrier of it, it's not not what you would have thought it was.
2: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, It's so prevalent and so powerful and painful that, of course, anything like that makes a great place to explore. Um, But I also think that just speaking to the phenomenon of of shame, that um, it's like a pretty... Um, it's hard to say when that might have appeared in the course of evolution, but it seems like an important aspect of our cultures today um, and that it served a purpose. It helps to, among other things, um, make sure that an individual in a society is playing by the rules, that they're um, doing what they're supposed to do. And being, one thing that is clear is that we are very social beings. And so I think part of why shame is so, um, so difficult, so painful is that it feels like if we, um, break through the shame that we will, uh, be, uh, disappointing other people that will be ostracized from society because we're not playing the shame game. Um, uh, so it can happen just day to day, whether it's at home or at work, stuff like that. But I think even things like capitalism and advertising and stuff like that can play into that shame. So I think it's become, it's, it's probably been around since the dawn of culture, but it's become extremified and and amplified to a very high degree in our society. And so absolutely it's super rich and worthwhile to go in there um but if it feels really really intense i think that's why i think it's it really is that amplified and intensified in the culture today
3: voice Yeah, I, I like that you said that it's culturally based because I think in different cultures it's probably experienced differently, has different um, places where it's concentrated maybe experientially. Like a- probably in Western culture in this country, it's like a broad um, phenomenon of like so it's. I feel like the shame surrounds the sense of self. Um. Kind of like. It's like the the wrapping around it. And it's it creates like a sense of a density somewhere. Um. In experience. And I I've always come to see that shame, it's not really like, as much an experience as it is an activity. It's like an ongoing process of hiding. Because I I mean, especially lately, when I've tried to investigate it emotionally, I can't, can't really doesn't feel like a true emotion. Um, It feels more of like a process that's hiding. So the process of hiding the activity of hiding. What it's hiding, no one knows. <laughs> that's undefined. Um, but it, it's it's funny that it's it's like a whirlpool effect, where we're like with enough of that activity, it creates a sense of a center, um. and maybe the emotion that's going to reveal itself ultimately in that exploration is fear. Something that says, don't look here, don't look here. Or a sense of disgust I found too. Maybe that's more of an emotion there, like just disgust or contempt. Those feel more like emotions that could be behind the hiding. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you mention the the cultural aspect of shame. Um, I I can recall, you know, I think each individual, based maybe on our our neurophysiology, has the has the not only the capacity but inevitability of creating a sense of self, reflective self at a pretty young age, probably less than two years old, and so the the that's the the sort of kernel or the seed, but it, it I think it gets strongly reinforced the the self consciousness that that's a sort of I don't know disassociated self-consciousness a self-judging self-fearing self-consciousness gets reinforced often by interactions with other people so i can remember very specific interactions with family members for instance where it's suddenly like the way they were looking at me talking to me or even saying my name made me feel like oh there's something wrong with me like i'm there's something wrong here you know just not even a thought at that point is a feeling tone of like ooh, like what something's wrong like a recoil inward and like a that core getting more solidified yeah um and it's it's so interesting looking back to see how that formed and then because probably of the the layers of social conditioning and fear of social you know judgment ostracization whatever um rejection uh it makes it so you don't want to look there because if you did look there it reminds you of the memories those echoes in consciousness of when you were rejected at a you know at a very young age at a vulnerable age um, so then you, you learn behaviors. This goes just into what you were talking about, Alma, with behaviors. It goes into actually just developing behaviors that fit into the social network with other people who are doing exactly the same thing. And it's just like we just walk through, you know, endless rooms and there's elephants everywhere. And no one's talking about anything real. Still, there's, you know, and that's why I love these kinds of conversations because this is the only thing I really care. If I'm going to open my mouth to talk, I'd rather speak honestly and vulnerably and authentically then you know be nice or people please or say niceties for no reason at all right but but i mean truly the so much of conversation so much of interactions among humans especially language-based stuff is is pretty you know somewhere between kind of meaningless and actually actively and (laughs) authentic here's something and not the good kind of no content
4: the um So in this personal journey, what was really clearly discovered was the very primary belief that was here was oriented around shame. And in the avoidance of wanting to feel the sensations associated with that, a confirmation bias had been created to avoid this. I had this lens of avoid this, avoid this, avoid this. And by doing so, there was a part of me constantly looking out for a verification of these, these beliefs, or this primary fundamental belief of, I am unlovable, and everywhere I looked, I was unlovable. There was evidence everywhere. And so that, that's where the confirmation, confirmation bias starts to play into this. Just because it seems apparently true, do not buy it on the surface. This is the nature of curiosity, to go into it a little further and to ask, what more is here? And you begin to find, something really fundamental a sensation a sensation that we can't grasp that feels like pure annihilation this is going to kill me there's a clue there too because it's that intense and that right there is where the fear of non-existence flips on its head and it's actually a fear of existing at all very very fundamentally
0: I think that kind of wraps it up pretty nicely. Unless anyone else has any last thoughts.
3: I just wanted to comment on what you said about how this is formed in childhood, where we do get genuine or like physical feedback from others through their facial expressions and body language that they are reacting to us. They are having, they are communicating their. their judgment of us and that has an emotional imprint and I think we internalize that sense of the other looking at us with reflective consciousness Um, and I think it was interesting that you said Angelo that it's like it's skewed towards the like negative like uh, (laughs) self-rejecting yeah right Um, that's shame seems to be about that about a, a rejection and that at some age like there was a legitimate pressured to have social acceptance like that's just that's how we evolved right to to seek that and to um mold ourselves in such a way where, where we that was the ultimate goal to to gain social acceptance because social rejection is consequential and um i i feel like at it's, it's so intertwined with like survival and um, the, yeah, the, the part where identity starts to sprout within that pressure for social acceptance, like that's where it, that's, that's the nuance that then we could like pick apart afterwards. Mm. But I think to understand that it, it was absolutely natural um, to develop Like shame has a role clearly in, um, in our evolution, I think Mm. psychologically. And, um, that it was, it was adaptive. And then it's funny because as we grow older, it becomes very, could become very dysfunctional and like actually end up leading to social rejection. Mm -hmm. We develop social anxiety because of shame, for example. Um, but early on, like we, we were vulnerable, as you said, and, um, are very sensitive to the, the response of others, particularly adults, probably when we were young. Hey. Yeah. And that we, we depend on that approval or at least some sense of being acknowledged. We depend on that to survive. So mm-hmm. it was, it was necessary.
0: Yeah, and the, and the last thing that's coming to me about this that's so fascinating I find in myself and I find it in anyone I work with along, this, along these lines, that is shame in one sense is sort of the gateway or this at least this space we're talking about. It's the gateway between the, the per, what feels like hyper-personal because as personal as it gets is that deepest part inside you that you're just terrified to look at. That's as personal as anything will ever feel and it's the gateway between that and the radically impersonal. Because what I could really say is that none of this is a, is a personal game. It's, it's, you already sold yourself the idea of being a person, of being an individual, of being separate. And it's completely innocent. That's probably a physiologic thing. But because of that, there's this kind of ingenious thing out there, this pain body. You call it the ego, the collective ego, whatever you want to call it. But it uses that to hide this little bit of don't look here. A little bit of pretending that there's a place you, you, don't, you don't look or can't look or shouldn't look. And that is required for delusion because without that, you know, if you could say, speak from unconditional love, it looks everywhere. It wants to see everything, including the most painful place. And that's the beauty of the Dharma vehicle is it, it really just looks right where you, you don't want to look. It, you know, it goes where you don't want to go. Um, and it's quite ingenious. So, so really, it's, it's tragic that we play this trick on ourselves, where we put so much energy into creating something that can't actually exist, which is the place you can't look and we hide it in this deep, deep place inside us. It's like the movie we watched the other night on the, on the roof scene when he said, "Where where is the best place for an enemy to hide? The last place you would ever look. And he looks at him, he says, it's hiding behind your pain, Jake. You're protecting it with your pain. You're protecting it. You're protecting your enemy inside of yourself with your pain, you know? And that's right on the money, it really is. And when, you're, when you've breached that barrier, however you do it, you find it was never at all the way it looked from the side of fear, from the side of avoidance. <laughs> There's nothing there.
1: Well that's the that's the big giveaway. <laughs> that's the trick. I mean it's there's nothing anything there. Well It was a gift. The same thing that separated you was the same thing that was leading you back to free yourself. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. <laughs> who's at fault? <laughs> well, it's, it's part of the game. Part of right? the game. Right. So it's like it's it's hard to find anything wrong with anything because mm-hmm. everything is a, a, a point of entry mm-hmm. that's going to free the this non-existent thing that's searching for itself and also it's like, sometimes the best thing to do is to kind of go with it. I think in my experience, one of the first things that opened up was willingness and prior to willingness was to accept the fact that I didn't know. And once I could say, you know what? I don't know the willingness came, let's go and see. Mm -hmm. And the same thing that led me away. It also led breadcrumbs right back to it, (laughs) to get back to its source, the point of inception, and it can't go past from where it was created, but that's not the end. But when we start to believe the fear, if we take that point to be the end, the profound loneliness, what happens there?